0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the September 20th Autism Science Foundation Weekly Science Podcast. My name is Alicia Halliday, and this week I have a guest, yes, a guest and a scientist to comment on the findings of two new recent studies and how they impact families with autism. They both involve the early detection and diagnosis of infants, part of a project called the Baby Siblings Research Consortium. Siblings are 15 times more likely to be diagnosed with autism compared to those with no family history. Now, this allows researchers and public health experts to detect the earliest signs and features of autism for an earlier, more accurate diagnosis so that services can begin ASAP. Now, they've banded together because there's power in greater numbers. What have they found? They found that things like response to name, not making eye contact, and delayed age to first walking as well as lack of use of gestures like pointing as well as a reduction in eye gaze are signs that do not mean an autism diagnosis, but it does mean that you should bring your child in for a developmental evaluation. Now, some findings are very, very hard to detect for parents. For example, eye gaze. Kids with autism have diminished eye gaze. Well, how does a parent measure that? And what does that diminished or less mean? We encourage all of you to go to Autism Navigator or Baby Navigator for more information on what this looks like. But in the meantime, something like eye gaze has been controversial because some, but not all all autistic families, understand the value of the metric of eye gaze and why it can be important for early detection and diagnosis. As I mentioned, eye gaze, is it quantifiable? How do you look at it? So I've invited Devin Gangi, a research scientist working with Sally Ozanoff at UC Davis to provide perspective about eye gaze by talking about one of her papers that looked at eye gaze across multiple studies. She discusses why the findings are important and what can be done about it. Also, I was happy because while I snagged her for the interview on eye gaze, I also asked her to comment on another study she led that followed these infant siblings from those early eye gaze studies all the way out to school age, 7 to 15, to find out how they were doing, what was going on when they reached school. And of importance, while she includes the abilities of those with an autism diagnosis, those findings aren't new. However, she also includes that group of siblings that may not have an autism diagnosis, but they're struggling in some way. Maybe they have a language delay. Maybe they have ADHD or something known as the broader autism phenotype. That is not an autism diagnosis that needs a label, but many of the siblings show challenges that need supports that may be unrecognized. And now, here is my interview with Dr. Devin Genki.
1: Thank you so much. And thank you so much for the opportunity to be here and speak about this work today. Um, as you said, I'm currently at UC Davis at the MIND Institute. I'm working in uh, Dr. Sally Ozanoff's lab. Um, and I've been in the infant sibling world for a little while. Um, I did my graduate work with uh, Dr. Daniel Messinger at the University of Miami, um, working on infant sibling studies, and then um, came here as a postdoctoral fellow and now as an assistant uh, project scientist um, with Dr. Ozanoff um, at the UC Davis Institute.
0: So you have a lot of expertise in this area. You've seen a lot of families. Let's start with um, looking at some early behaviors um, in infants and that's eye gaze. Can you describe what eye gaze is and why it's so critical?
1: Absolutely. So here, when we are talking about eye gaze, we're referring to infants um, kind of looking at the face of a a person they're interacting with. So an adult, a parent, an examiner, um, but kind of looking toward the face of another person that they're interacting with. And this is really critical because it's one of the early reported core deficits in autism, Um, and it's really an early social communication behavior. So when infants don't have a whole lot they can do in their repertoire, um, this is one of the behaviors that develops really early on before spoken language it's already reliably present early in infancy and so it's something that we can study um, from very early in life and how it's developing from that very early age.
0: does when, when do things start to diverge in terms of typical development and an autism diagnosis with eye gaze since it is such an early developing behavior?
1: So prospective studies, which are those studies that track children's development from very early in infancy through an age where a reliable ASD diagnosis can be made, um, have reported that children who are later diagnosed with autism tend to show differences in those types of early social communication behaviors by around the first year. Um, So a prior study from our lab in a relatively smaller sample of children um, found that eye gaze decreased in children with autism from six to 36 months um, with those differences um, from children who didn't have autism evident by 12 months.
0: So this is a topic because when you think about something that may be so simple to obtain, and by the way, it's not simple because there's a whole protocol. So parents, if you don't feel like your child is meeting your eye gaze or, or, or having um, the right gaze, then take them to a pediatrician or a neurodevelopmental pediatrician, but don't assume that you can make that diagnosis based on eye gaze. There have been a lot of studies, I mean, maybe not like thousands, but there have been multiple studies that have looked at differences in eye gaze in early infancy. So what did you do in this this particular paper that you published and um, why was it important to look uh, across multiple studies?
1: Absolutely. So, um, well, I'll start um, first with just kind of tackling why it's important to look across multiple studies. Um, And so really why we want to do that and replicate our findings from from study to study is to make sure that our results are accurate and we're finding something that's kind of broadly true and not just specific to that one particular study or one particular group of participants. Um, And when we're looking at behaviors like this, so things like eye gaze, it's also important for us to make sure that those findings are true in more than just one context so that something we see. In one particular laboratory setting or in one particular measure, um, is kind of broadly true in other contexts too. So maybe things that we see while, you know, during testing with an examiner might also be true while kids are at home playing with parents or things like that. And so what we did here was we aimed to replicate those findings from that original study in our lab that found those early declines in eye gaze. Um, and so we had two independent groups of infants um, for this study um, where we used the same methods to look at their eye gaze. Um, and this time we used two different contexts with an adult. Um, so for one group during developmental testing, the kind of standard testing that kids do when they come into a lab um, to, to track their development. And then the other context was during play with toys. So the examiners would just play with an infant um, with a set of toys. And we looked at um, videos of their behavior to code the infant's gaze to whether they were looking toward the face of the examiner or not during those interactions. Um, and um, then what we found in this study um, was that we were able to replicate those original findings of those early declines. Um, so across both groups of children and across both interactive settings, we found that most children who were diagnosed with autism at 36 months showed those sharp decreases in how often they looked at the face of the adult they were interacting with. Um, relative to children without autism from six to 36 months of age. And children with autism showed lower levels of gaze to the adult space by six to 12 months of age.
0: Can you explain to me how it is that you are studying eye gaze in a clinic and why that might be different from parents trying to figure it out if their child is, is lagging at home? What is it that goes on in the clinic and what it, what goes, what's happening?
1: Sure, Um, and so the way that we have looked at it for these types of studies is that we have a child um, interacting with an examiner for a variety of um, reasons over the course of an assessment. Um, So for example, examiners are typically doing things like developmental assessment where they're assessing a child's language skills, their motor skills, um, their kind of perception skills and things like that. So um, kind of standardized developmental assessments. And for those types of assessments, all children are getting the same types of materials, the same types of prompts, and those types of things. Um, And then there are often some kind of play-based things that examiners are doing with kids as well. Um, And so what we do for these types of studies is we videotape all of those interactions, and then um, we go back to kind of get an objective measure of that eye gaze. And we have, um, from those videotapes, we kind of hand code um, as we go through those tapes. Each time a child looks up to the face of the partner that they're interacting with. So in most cases, it's the examiner. And then from that, we can gather things like the frequency of um, how often a child is looking to the face of the examiner, how long they're looking at their faces, things like that.
0: So eye gaze is important so, for so many reasons. Has it been tied to later social communication behavior?
1: Mm-hmm. So I gaze is one of the um, kind of, you know, as we said earlier, that it's one of those early developing skills. And so it's one of the ones that we can see from really early in infancy. Um, it's kind of an early onset red flag for ASD as well. Um, so it's one of the kind of early um, deficits that we often see in children who later develop ASD. And I gaze is really important um, also for learning things like language, for learning just kind of about your world, because it's how children are interacting with people around them and how they're able to gain information from their world and from the people around them is by kind of checking in with um, people they're interacting with and looking back and forth between the things that they're doing and the things that they're playing with and learning about and people around them to, for those kinds of learning opportunities.
0: Thank you. So if there is something that you want families to know about this study, what would it be? And also, does this have any implications for particular interventions or is it really too early for that right now?
1: So what we are thinking um, is that with this, what the study tells us is that it may be that most kids who develop autism do show these kind of early declines in behaviors that are that are present really early in life, and so those declining trajectories may be actually pretty common in kids developing autism, and so ultimately what we think might be something beneficial for from this study is that we could do something like tracking these key social behaviors, like looking at the face of other people, and track those social behaviors over time in kids as they're developing, um, so for example, the way that things like height and weight are charted at well-child visits with your pediatrician, um, if we we could implement tracking of things like these social behaviors and kind of chart those over time that, you know, we would hope that we could be able to kind of catch kids earlier on in the decline of those behaviors, um, and get them some supports and potentially interventions before they're even meeting criteria for a full autism diagnosis. But as we're seeing these behaviors start to decline in a way that tends to happen for many kids who develop autism. And so ultimately that's, um, where we see potential benefit of this type of work. Um, and our lab is currently working on methods of evaluating these behaviors in in ways that could be applied outside the laboratory as well um, in places like a doctor's office. Um, and so yeah. now we're working on like a video-based screening tool, um, hoping to make that a little bit easier.
0: Yeah, I know the big the big hurdle is out, having pediatricians who have that 10 minutes to, to really do a very thorough interview <laughs> 10 minutes. So it's important to get your child to those early visits and to communicate any concerns you have, because if you just say you don't have any concerns, they're just going to check the box and move on. If you indicate that you have a concern or that you're worried, or especially if you have an older child in the family who has an autism diagnosis, bring it up, say it, because that could warrant further evaluation.
1: Absolutely. And as parents, you're the ones spending the most time with your kids. So, you know, know them best. Um, and that, yeah, the, these are particularly important things to track for kids with a family history of, of autism.
0: Was there anything else about this study that you wanted to mention or say or a question I didn't ask?
1: Um, I did just wanna make sure that I thank the families who participated in this study, um, that you know, families have participated in the study and they devote years of their time um, and lots of effort for the study. So I do wanna just um, acknowledge how much work it is for families who participate in these longitudinal studies where we're working with them to track their kids' development over time um, and how much we appreciate all the effort that they've contributed to these studies and these findings as well, and that we couldn't do this without them.
0: Thank you, that is, that is very important. So along the same lines of these families participating in research studies, you know, you don't just kind of send them out into the world with no support after they either get a diagnosis or don't get a diagnosis. And in my introduction, I talked about how there are um, families that have uh, children with a family history that go on to get a diagnosis. There are those that don't go on to get a diagnosis, but there may be a little something, something going on. And then those who are either typically developing 100% or come from families without um, a family history of autism as a comparison group. So you guys aren't just following them until they get a diagnosis and then letting them kind of go out in the world. I mean, they do do that, but you are following them. You recently published a study where you're following them to school age and specifically looking at those with an autism diagnosis, those without an autism diagnosis, and those that are having some particular challenges. So can you explain why you were following them to school age and, and, and what this meant for the families? Because I know it is a burden.
1: Absolutely, yes. And we so appreciate the families who were willing to come back to us, you know, sometimes a decade later um, or more after their initial sign up with the studies. Um, and so we've had in our lab um, over the last 18 or so years, um, three different cohorts of kids who have come through our infant sibling studies um, where they've, you know, tracked their kids' development from six months to three years old. And now we've been seeing those kids back between the ages of seven and about 15 or 16 years old. Old to evaluate their later outcomes after those initial three-year-old outcomes. Um, and part of the reason for doing this is to, you know, just kind of track these de- kids' development over time as they get older. And that while reliable autism diagnoses can generally be made for most kids by the age of three, um, there are kids who, you know, we want to check up on and make that those make sure that those diagnoses are correct. Um, and also that many other difficulties that can be common for kids who have a family history of ASD may be more likely to emerge older in childhood instead of by the age of three. So things like um, ADHD symptoms, anxiety difficulties, learning difficulties, those are all things that we don't necessarily see by three, but that these kids might be struggling with as they get older and as they get into school age.
0: So some of these challenges have been called what is known the broader autism phenotype, where it's not an autism diagnosis. It's part of a spectrum within a spectrum. It's important to make sure that if it is a different diagnosis, that that's noted, but also noted that there's a family history of autism. So can you describe what this broader autism phenotype is and what it means clinically?
1: Absolutely. And the tricky part about this broader autism phenotype or BAP um, is that it's not a clinical diagnosis like autism is, as you said. Basically what it refers to are subclinical characteristics that are related to the core features of ASD. Um, So this can include things like language difficulties or delays, difficulties in social functioning, restricted or repetitive behaviors and interests, rigidity, things like that. Um, And we do tend to see elevated rates of the BAP um, or these types of characteristics in family members of individuals with ASD. And it doesn't have one set definition or method of measurement, but again, in general, it refers to the kind of subclinical or, and what we mean by that are kind of milder or less functionally impairing um, versions of those kind of autism traits or symptoms. And the BAP has been linked to difficulties in things like social relationships and poor mental health outcomes, both in childhood and later on in adulthood. And so that's why that's something we want to um, take a look at for this, these kids in particular.
0: So you looked at kids with an autism diagnosis and those who fit the kind of the criteria for those who had some sort of challenge BAP or, or something else. And then those who didn't, who were typically developing, and then you followed them for how long? And then what were you looking at, at when you were following them?
1: Um, So we followed these kids um, between the ages of seven and 15 or 16. So depending on kind of when they enrolled, um, we're seeing them back over the last few years um, at those school age time points. And then we're doing kind of a whole battery of assessments. So we're looking for things like their social communication behaviors, um, how well they're doing with kind of academic learning. So things like reading and spelling and math, those types of things, and also looking for um, other symptoms. So doing interviews with parents about things like other psychopathology symptoms, so things like depression or anxiety, ADHD, things like that. So it's a kind of fairly comprehensive battery, um, and we're still kind of working on analyzing a lot of the data from those broader visits. And so here, what we focused on for this particular study were those social communication behaviors. And so we evaluated that through a couple of different methods of assessment. Um, And so this is true for these visits for a whole bunch of behaviors that we try to capture them in different ways. And so one method is by including caregiver reports. Um, So that would be something like a checklist that a parent might fill out about behaviors that they do or don't see in their kids. Another method is formal assessments. So those are kind of standardized measures that an examiner might administer to a child where everyone's getting the same standardized set of questions and they're compared to um, kind of norms for those kids' ages. And then the third way that we, met, that we assess these things are through kind of observation measures. And so for something where we might have a more naturalistic context, where you then make a structured observation of the child's behavior. Um, And so for that observation measure for the study in particular, we included a conversation with the child where the examiner would engage in conversation with the child for several minutes, just about kind of general topics and kind of following the child's lead and then filled out a rating scale based on that interaction that we then used for the study for that, that observed measure of social communication skills.
0: So as kids got older and they reached age seven to 15, Those that were in the autism group versus those that kind of didn't meet criteria for autism, but there was something broader going on versus typically developing, what particular challenges emerged for the ones who were diagnosed with autism and those who had kind of the broader spectrum, but not a diagnosis?
1: Sure. First, kind of across the board, the children who did have a diet, and I should say too, that we did um, confirm for each of these children in this group that they still met criteria for autism at the school age visit. So they were diagnosed by age three and still continued to meet um, at the at the school age visit. Um, And so for those kids, they exhibited lower skills um, than children with the BAP and that comparison group of children without autism or BAP features on all the measures that we gave. So on those parent report or caregiver report checklists, the formal assessments, and then the observation measure, which is what we would expect that um, children who still met criteria for diagnosis of autism had more difficulty with with all those measures of social communication. But for children in the BAP group, we found that they exhibited lower conversational skills with an examiner during that kind of observation during conversation, but they didn't significantly differ from that comparison group of children Mm -hmm. on any of the other measures. So on that caregiver checklist or on the standardized assessment, and they tended to kind of perform in the average range on those assessments um, of social communication skills. And so what we think that this suggests is that those naturalistic settings or conversation might be more sensitive than those Mm. broader standardized measures Mm. in identifying social communication difficulties in children with the BAP, which by definition are more subtle than the difficulties experienced by kids who meet full criteria for a diagnosis of autism. And it might also be that children with the BAP struggle more in implementing those social communication skills moment to moment during interaction. So they might have a little bit easier time giving answers about how to perform those skills on a standardized assessment, or that they might be able to do those in more comfortable settings, like say with a really familiar caregiver and at home and things like that. But then in different contexts, so say in conversation with an examiner or kind of implementing those skills moment to moment during interaction. that might be where these struggles come up a little bit more for these particular kids. And so these naturalistic settings are particularly important when assessing for social communication difficulties in children with a family history of ASD.
0: And when you say naturalistic, do you mean like within the home, within the school
1: We mean the types of settings that children are likely to encounter in their day to day. So here um, we did it in a laboratory setting, but we just had a kind of a natural conversation going Mm -hmm. back and forth. So rather than a setting where kids are asked a prescribed set of questions with prescribed answers, um, just kind of asking an opening question. So we asked things like, what do you like to do for fun? And then just kind of followed along the child's lead in conversation, so those kind of natural settings that are likely to be what a child might have to or might be encountering in their day-to-day life, so that kind of natural setting.
0: What's your suggestion as a clinician about how you handle the challenges of someone who fits this category of the broader autism phenotype or someone that's not, doesn't have an autism diagnosis, but is somewhere on the spectrum?
1: Yeah, I think that um, it definitely highlights the need for clinicians to be implementing ongoing monitoring for these kids with a family history of autism. So like you were saying earlier, that just because these kids don't necessarily meet criteria for an autism diagnosis at age three doesn't mean that they aren't going to have any struggles um, as they continue to develop. Once we are identifying that kids are having difficulties in some area, um, then we can try to implement supports. So that might mean something different for different kids and might depend on kind of how individual kids and families are feeling like they might be struggling. So it might be things like social skills, uh, assistance with social skills, Things like that. But I think um, it's important to evaluate what particular kids are struggling with. So they might be struggling in areas of making and maintaining friendships. They might be struggling with other psychopathologies, so things like anxiety. So just kind of continuing to monitor for these types of things and providing the support that are be- going to be beneficial for those particular children.
0: Well, thank you. Thank you for conducting those studies and all the work that you have done on behalf of families who have a family history of autism. Um, We really look forward to the next stage where you kind of come back and look at them as young adults or adults. They'll They'll be at that point before you know it. Thank you so much for listening this week and I will talk to you next week.